Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener on our private feed where you'll have ad-free episodes and join us in Zoom meetups to meet other listeners of our podcast community. Go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes. If anyone that is listening and is like considering it, but worried that it's like too late, it's never too late. It is never too late. Like even if you're 50, 60, 80, I don't believe it's too late. My name is Esprit Devora, host of the Women in Tech show. The show means a lot to me. The reason why I wanted to create the Women in Tech show is I wanted to create a positive piece of content, something where people can listen and say, if she can do it, so can I. Today's Women in Tech podcast shout out goes to Corinna Santoro. That's Corinna Santoro. Thank you so much for your sweet message. Corinna wrote us on Instagram that she just discovered the podcast and she's been binge listening and she doesn't binge listen to anything, which is incredible. She says that she loves what we're doing. She works with a tech employee resource group and she has been telling everybody about the show Corinna thank you so much for your DM it means so much be sure to say hello to Corinna on Instagram tell her that you discovered her via the women in tech podcast at the only Corinna that's t-h-e-o-n-l-y-c-o-r-i-n-a If you too want to connect and collaborate with more incredible women in tech, remember you can go to the Women in Tech Facebook group at womenintechvip.com. That's womenintechvip.com. The best business resource I have is my mentor's private Facebook group. I've never found a community that cares more about one another's success. It inspired me to create the same thing for podcasters. If you're a tech company or startup looking to grow your podcast audience, I created GetPodcastListeners.com, a private group specifically to discover how other podcasters have grown their audiences so we could do the same. Check out GetPodcastListeners.com. That's GetPodcastListeners.com. So I know multitasking has been proven to be inefficient. However, there's a difference between multitasking and if there's something that you just genuinely don't feel like doing and you're able to do it at the same as another time, something else that you do enjoy, like kind of like tricking your brain. I think Tony Robbins talks about this. So let's say the dishes. Who likes to do the dishes? Close to no one. But let's say while doing the dishes, you get to watch YouTube videos. I love watching my YouTube videos. I want David Dobrik to come back. And then it makes it like almost this enjoyable thing where you get to watch YouTube videos when doing the dishes. Right now, I'm recording this personal spot for you while I'm taking a walk, and I just dropped off something at UPS, and I walked there in order to get my exercise in because I aim to get 10,000 steps a day, right? And so that's not multitasking. That's like building layers where one of the things like, do you really need to watch YouTube videos? No, right? But like, if that's what you dig and you don't dig doing the dishes, but the dishes need to be done anyway, like... What a great mind hack to like match up the things that we like with the things that we don't like that we have to do anyway in order to get the things that we don't like done in a more enjoyable way. Anyway, enjoy the next episode. Welcome back to the Women in Tech podcast, celebrating women in tech around the world. So hyped on our 
our next interview, we have Esther coming at us from San Francisco. Hello. Hello, Esprit. So good to be here. I'm so excited to have you too. And one of the things I should actually probably correct right away, all of us, especially in Los Angeles, get it so wrong. So you're in the Bay Area, San Mateo, which isn't actually San Francisco. Can you give us a breakdown? Like, how should we be saying it? Everybody's so obsessed. What's Silicon Valley? What's San Francisco? What's the Bay Area? What's San Mateo? Yeah, I mean, it's all kind of one. It's Bay Area. San Mateo is the best way to describe it is it's like five minutes from SFO, San Francisco Airport. And it's really quick to the city. It's about 30 minutes to San Francisco. We call that whole area the peninsula, and that's part of Silicon Valley. And then if you just keep going south, then you hit the South Bay, and that's part of Silicon Valley as well. Love it. Because I think if you're not from there, you think all of it is just one place. (laughs) Yeah, it kind of is. It's just like this big mush, and you kind of take this one highway called 101 or 280, and you're just going south. With so much innovation, and you are contributing to the innovation there. Why don't we kick things off? Go ahead and tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. My name's Esther Ahn, and I'm the head of UX at YouTube TV. And that's a little different from the typical YouTube that you go to watch videos. YouTube TV is a streaming service for live TV, and it offers over 70 channels. And it's similar to what you would experience with cable TV but you get to watch live content like news, sports, and you also get an unlimited DVR where you can record stuff and then you get personalized recommendations for what to watch. And you're focused on sports, right? Is that what you said? Yeah, so that's another area. So I I oversee the product of YouTube TV and that's the whole experience of live streaming. And I also have been taking on the vertical of what the sports experience is on YouTube. And so that can happen on YouTube TV and that can also happen on YouTube. I have to ask you about the sports because my history, I built the first action sports social network. So you saying sports makes me so excited. So which ones get you super excited too? I like a lot of the different things. I'm definitely uh, an NBA fan. So I love watching basketball. Uh, I do love watching tennis. And there's not a whole lot going on right now, I got to tell you. But there was some golf on, which I wasn't, you know, it was like, you can't be too choosy. There was even things like watching <laughs> you can't be too choosy. That's funny. There was like marble racing. You know, I saw that there was, yeah, all sorts of interesting things going on to make sure fans getting something. What does your day to day look like at YouTube? Yeah. So I'll be honest, like it's definitely a bit different right now, you know, as we're all sheltering in place and we're in this new way of working. So my day to day is is a bit different from what it usually was. It typically starts around like six where my uh, five-year-old rolls into my bed. And so that's wake up time. And then first thing is I hit the coffee machine and then start making breakfast for the kids and then get them settled into homeschooling. Like there's some assignments for both of my kids. And then I go straight to my makeshift desk because I don't have a home office right now. So I, if you saw my setup, you would be cracking up because I'm using a like old like TV dinner table that you can fold open. So I got that going. It's on my list to sort of fix that. And then I start, you know, typically with a kickoff with my team and I manage a team of designers and UX researchers, content strategists, and we usually do a stand-up, which is just going through what people are working on. And then I may end up in some testing sessions where we're reviewing some of the product designs with some of our viewers and getting feedback, or I'll be in like a design crit, like we'll go through some different explorations of concepts. Right now, we are looking at the the product design of YouTube TV and how we're going to evolve it. 
And there's some really cool stuff there where we're trying to really lean into more interactive experiences of TV watching. And so there's some really cool stuff there that we explore and we kind of get feedback on and just make sure we're asking the right questions. And then, you know, because we're working from home, it's making sure that there's some fun time. So I've been playing a lot of online Pictionary with them. This seems to work. <laughs> where we just don't talk about work and we uh, doodle and make ridiculous drawings and blurt out things like sombrero. That usually is about the day. A lot of meetings, I try to get up and move and take some one-on-one meetings while I'm walking outside. And sometimes when it's not just my project work, I meet with our women at YouTube, which is a community focused on empowering all women at Google and and just uh, learning and helping support initiatives that they're working on. And how many people are on your team? On the UX team, we have about 12 people total that support YouTube TV and support the growing sports vertical that we have on YouTube. You talked about women of YouTube or YouTube women? It's women at It's basically just a community within YouTube where women from different product areas and different disciplines, all different, not just UX, they come together and just work on different initiatives to support and empower women. That sounds so cool. Is there anything more that you could tell me about that? I mean, I had no idea. That's really awesome. It is really awesome. I'm really like lucky and excited to be part of that. We had put together a really amazing summit. So we do an annual summit and I helped put together the last one that we did. And it was just coming up with an agenda. It was a full day session. It's open to everyone. It's not just open to women. It's open to all allies. The whole theme was around resilience And so we just catered topics and panels and had keynotes and come in and just allow for a platform to discuss topics that are both professional and personal and just helping to empower each other. Let's jump into your history before you got to where you are today. Let's go back to the beginning. When did you first realize like your body lights up for technology? You know, I think at an early age, like I always really gravitated towards uh, anything that was creative, anything that like sparked my curiosity. And so early on, I was always interested in using my hands and sort of learning things. I remember um, begging my parents in junior high if I could take art classes. I I grew up in New York. I really want to take some classes in the city. And there was amazing art schools there. So I begged to go to Parsons School of Design and take some classes starting in like around 14. I remember feeling so grown up because I would take the train and and grab my portfolio and my art bin with all my stuff. And I would go there and sit in the studio. And it wasn't tech per se, but it was just like my first exploration into being creative. And like, I see that as being where I was like in a studio environment and just being able to kind of draw and get ideas and brainstorm with other folks. And that started like my just feeling of knowing I needed to sort of think of things differently and create. And then that sort of evolved into a whole bunch of different things. I ultimately landed at one of my jobs out of college was at a small industrial design firm in New York City, and it was called Smart Design. Um, and industrial design for those that it's, it's really like the practice of design for objects, you know, toys, kitchen appliances, everyday objects that people use to make their lives better or easier. And so this was a small studio that I got to work at. And it was like really cool because it was just located on Varick and Spring Street and Soho, you know, just being sort of in my 20s and and walking into the design studio. It was like one of the coolest things where it was just like you walk in and you go up the stairs of this brick building 
and it's like this completely light-filled room and prototypes, sketches, all sorts of things, like just all around the studio. And that's where they were building products. And those products could range from kitchen spatulas, blenders, and printers. And so that was where I was really starting to understand a little bit more about tech. Now, did you say that you were in Parsons School of Design at 14? Yeah, just like on the weekends. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, I was doing it, but I I definitely, yeah, decided to to do it a little bit on the weekends and spend my Saturdays there. So I did the same thing. I went to UCLA at 15, same kind of like an extension program or something. And the reason why I wanted to bring attention to one, I thought it was really cool, but also for everyone younger that's listening, you don't have to feel like you need to wait till you grow up to start pursuing things and become curious. There are so many opportunities. Like I took the extension class at UCLA and Esther took the Parsons design, you know, opportunity. Like there's just so many things. And I I don't usually speak to such a younger audience, but for those of you listening who are younger, I just think that's a really important thing to pick up on. How did you find it? I was in New York. And so we always kind of knew about things that were happening in the city. I was in Long Island and I always knew about like these, I had an older brother and like, you know, sort of always kind of like saw what the older cool kids were doing. And so I had heard about these like art schools. One of the kids in my school was doing something similar. And so I was like, oh, I I really want to try that out. I didn't know much about it, but I knew I wanted to do something different from just the day-to-day school thing. And I don't know why I just said younger people listening. I know a lot of parents are listening and it's something to think about for your kids too. For sure, for sure. I, you know, I, my six-year-old this morning just finished a coding class. And after that, she needed to take her drawing class. These are classes. I'm not a crazy tiger mom or I don't believe I am. She asked me (laughs) to sign her up for these, right? And so she's learning this awesome programming language called Scratch. I had no idea. I know at six, I would never be able to grasp that. I know, that's what I'm thinking. She's sitting there on a on a Zoom chat and they are building code for or simple things where they're drawing animations, they're making things move, they're recording their voice, they're just doing it. And wow. you know, these are things that she's interested in. And so, you know, I feel incredibly privileged that we have these opportunities and outlets to do it. And so She's like, hook me up. I'm like, all right. Wow. You just inspired me to create another podcast about interviewing kids like yours who are really pushing our worlds forward without even knowing. Anyway, that's a whole nother thing, but that blows my mind. Getting back onto your path. So when did you first start to find your first career opportunities, which eventually led to being where you are today? It was never like a straight path, you know, and I know of a lot of people that I've worked with that also have similar stories where it was just a lot of, uh, I guess, turns along the way. And I would say mine was was definitely that. I was creative. I wanted to do something in that field. I would say I took those classes when I was early, but I knew I wasn't a fine artist. Like I just didn't have that. But there was something and it took me a really long time to figure out. I don't even know if I'm there yet, but I went to to college. I remember leaving New York. So graduated high school and then I decided to uh, move across the country. So I left New York. I was like, I'm ready to like go to California, check it out. Right. And I went to a big liberal arts school and I was utterly lost. I remember being there. I was like 30,000 students. It's It's at Cal over here, Berkeley. And I was sitting there and I took a bunch of classes and realized I didn't like any of them. I wasn't particularly looking specifically for 
design because I didn't even know what that meant to study or profess. I knew it as something that I like to do as a hobby. I didn't know what it meant to study or explore it. It didn't take until like my junior year. I I remember sitting in this uh, building. It was called Worcester Hall. And it was the School of Architecture. It was a class about environmental design. And the professor's up there. And I typically was just like already checked out. I don't know. I was just kind of snoozing through some of those big lectures. But there was something in that class that really hit home for me. And it was just thinking about designing for environments. And they kept talking about how people were using spaces, physical spaces, whether it's park spaces or whether it's indoor spaces, and how we have the ability to craft environments, whether that's, you know, something out of materials or objects or crafting where they should aggregate or congregate. It just really hit. And I was like, this is it. It clicked for me and I pursued architecture. So I did that and I kicked my ass. It was so hard. It was so hard. I really think I like died a little there because it was just intense. You know, I was being in the studio a lot, trying to sort of learn the technical skills, develop models, craft the vision of something and being very detailed and specific. I remember during that time that like I knew that I wouldn't have the perfect model. Like there were so many other people that were so much highly technically advanced than me. And I I was like, oh man, I can't, I can't get to that. But when it came to presenting my work, that's when things really started to click because I was able to sort of put together a narrative of what I was trying to create. And I remember specifically the space we were designing. It was an urban park in Berkeley. There was a lot, there was nothing there. It was just like a plain lot off of Telegraph Ave. And it was just like, kind of like just an open space. And we had to reimagine what it would be. And I was, as I was crafting my story, I had a bunch of boards and I had uh, prototypes. And I think the people next to me blew me away. You know, they had like these crazy, like massive, intricately detailed stuff. And I just thought like had this like kind of basic thing. But I was trying to create a place for the community to come together, right? And to build a community garden. And this was, you know, years ago. So it's like thinking about like how we can sort of create spaces for people to come together. And that like just opened doors for me to understand, like I was making connections between different parts of a system and thinking about people's needs and thinking about the environment it's in, thinking about all the constraints that we have, right? Like thinking about the temperature, the way in which all the different sort of things that we had to deal with in terms of the incline of the of the plot. And so while I was telling that story, I was like, this is something I can do. Because that's when I started to see like the audience was perking up and they were starting to realize what the narrative and the vision I had for that space. That's when I realized like that's something that I want to do. And so I graduated that and I did some internships and I sucked. I realized I cannot be an architect. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I didn't like, know I was going there. <laughs> Yeah. And I was like, I remember sitting in this small architecture studio and like we were detailing out like bathrooms, which is, you know, going in CAD and, and again, really like the scrutinous detail of like, you know, measuring the space and making sure we're allocating for space. And I was like, I just felt it. I was like, this isn't it. So I was like, you know what, I'm not going to do this. And uh, I found like a gig at a small startup and I started doing graphic design for them. And so basically it was like designing their website and putting together brochures and doing the layouts, business cards, logos, and just tinkering around with that stuff. And so that was like my first entry. So you essentially pivoted physical spaces to digital spaces. <laughs> yes, totally pivoted. Yes. <laughs> 
it's really interesting where you didn't abandon the core interest that you had, the core passion you had, which is creating and innovating and really building up something from nothing to use your imagination. It's just the medium that you chose to execute and perform that interest with changed. It's fascinating to me that sometimes it's just the element that's not working. It's not the full picture. And we think sometimes it might be the full picture and we should ditch the whole, like, I'm not meant to be an architect. It wasn't, I'm not meant to be an architect. It's like, no, I meant to be a creator, to be an artist, but let me choose a different way of expressing myself. Definitely. I mean, it, it really was from physical to digital. And I realized like now how there's so many overlaps from the training and discipline of architecture and how that relates to interaction or UX design. But just to let you know, so I never ended up then going straight path to graphic design because I ended up in like a, a law firm at some point. I like knew you working. were about to say that. <laughs> I had a feeling, like I had a gut feeling, but I didn't yeah. want to say it out loud. And then, yeah. and then you said, and a law firm. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there was, again, like more, more sort of things because, you know, it was really hard times because that was actually during early 2000s, uh, where we had the big dot-com boom, right? Like, well, I mean, the dot-com, it was the bubble burst and a lot of people got laid off. And that was my first time where I got laid off, you know, and I was just out of school and I was like, oh, I remember it was like, I think it was actually a pink slip. It was a pink piece of paper. And it was like, you know, this is your last day. And I was like, oh boy. So that's when I packed it up and I went back to New York and I was like, okay, got to get another job. And what's that job going to be? And so that's how I ended up at uh, the largest law firm. So it was Skadden Arps in Manhattan, Times Square. It's basically the same as the Condé Nast building, right? So you can imagine like, you know, Devil Wears Prada. It's basically that building and everyone's walking in and there's two types of people that are walking, those in business suits and then those wearing like really amazing fashion, you know, high-end fashion. They go through two different elevators and I would go through the very corporate one and sit there and work on spreadsheets. And how did you muster up the life courage to say, I'm not sitting in the right spreadsheet. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. Like, I couldn't figure that out. Right. It was it was hard for me to identify what job I was supposed to have. But I had a really clear sense when it wasn't right. And that was not right. You know, and I think it was like maybe like Nine months in, I was sitting there and, and I was like, yeah, no, I got to keep looking. Was that hard or was it peaceful because you were just so ready? Stick around. We'll be right back after the break. We would not be able to support and celebrate women in tech around the world if it weren't for you. Thank you so much for being a listener and a fan of the show. To contribute and donate, simply go to womenintech.fm on the upper right-hand side and click Donate, which empowers us to continue celebrating women in tech around the world. Thank you for being a part of our journey. Was that hard or was it peaceful because you were just so ready? I think it was peaceful because I was just so ready. I think it like intuitively, it, it just didn't feel like me. I was hungry to sort of get back into the creative seat. You know, I just, I just felt it in my bones because I basically graduated with an architecture degree. I'm not going to be an architect. I did some like graphic design self-taught on my own, right? So I'm not like totally having this rockin' portfolio with a whole, whole bunch of clients. Right. So it was really hard for me to sort of figure out how to 
move into the next step. And so it was a little bit of luck, a little bit of gut intuition, but I got this gig at that place, Smart Design. The job was as a program manager. It's essentially like an account manager. And, you know, someone took a chance on me and he was like, you know, I think you're, you seem like a smart girl and like, I'll show you how to do this. And so I, I went in and that's, you know, when I remember getting off the subway and walking down to that corner of Spring Street and Varick, the coolest place to work. And I was like, yes, this is it. And then I walked up into that studio and I was like, this is so it, you know, just like feeling it. Like you were just walking into this amazing space. You're seeing all of this stuff where people are just creating at the time, that firm was incredible. It was just like this open layout and there was designers from all over the world. You had designers from Sweden, Japan, Australia, Germany, and they're all sitting there and it was just one mixing pot of amazing, pure genius. And there was like prototypes of everything imaginable because they were working with so many different companies. At the time, they were working for this company called OXO, which does kitchen products. They still exist but they were designing everything for them. And, and that whole company is based on just thinking about ergonomics and like transforming the form of a regular can opener uh, to make it easier for people who have difficulty with dexterity. And so they were crafting amazing objects that were beautiful and just completely reinventing, you know, what we think of ordinary objects. And you're like, those are my people. <laughs> I, I was like, this is my tribe. And like, yeah. <laughs> it was seriously like where it just clicked. I was like, it really was uh, foundational for me. And, you know, it was like that studio vibe. You knew everyone. There was like a kitchen in the back. Everyone grabbed their coffee and like would hang out in the mornings all together. They'd go onto the balconies and smoke, right? And like you would just like spend all your, your time there, your days there. You'd go have drinks together down the street. It was a really great, great set of people. And how did you eventually build up the professional experience to attract the abundance that is YouTube and really be able to perform your art there? And I think UX is an art. So truly, to me, and I hope this resonates with you, and if it doesn't, I welcome you to challenge me on it, but I feel like you're an artist it's socially acceptable art. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, oh yeah, we could take her seriously. That's a real artist or something. Yeah. I mean, it took some time. I mean, this was like back in 2003, right? Like when I first started and, and I wasn't even in the designer seat. So, you know, it was just learning about the design process. I think that's, you know, before it started getting coined design thinking, people were breathing it and doing it already. They were inviting people to come into the studio and test out stuff. And then they were uh, refining it, iterating on it. I ended up deciding to go back to school and I pursued a master's degree in interaction design. And that's where I, I spent two years. And I was old going back to grad school or I felt old, you know, in hindsight, it wasn't that old. Cause now I'm like, maybe I'm old now, but you know, I took the sort of two years off and went back. Are you okay sharing how old you were when you went back to grad school? Yeah, I went back to grad school at like 30. I just think that that's really important for people to hear because there are people who are 30 right now listening, wanting to go back to grad school and wondering if that's okay. And so hearing you say, yes, it's okay, I did it. Yes, it's so okay. It's so okay. It's scary. You know, it is scary because if you, you're kind of like making a pretty significant pivot. In my case, I was like leaving like a good income and like a nice apartment in Manhattan and like a good life I've set up and then moving to like Pittsburgh and wearing a backpack and being really poor, right? 
and like, Amazing. you know, just sitting and like, you know, having just enough to like buy a beer, right? That was two years. If anyone that is listening and is like considering it, but worried that it's like too late, it's never too late. It is never too late. Like even if you're 50, 60, 80, I don't believe it's too late. So yeah, hundred percent. How did you discover the opportunity at YouTube? When did that come into your life? Yes. Yeah, so after grad school, I, I joined a different design consultancy called Frog Design. And I'll tell you a whole nother story about that. And I spent many years there as a creative director. And that was like where we were working for a lot of different tech companies. And we had done a project for Google. And I, I was just really excited about Google in general, like, you know, the scale in which they're designing products for. And funny enough, one of the guys that I went to grad school with, so this is why it's so important to like, just remember all the folks and people that you come across, you will come across them again in your career. The past cross at all times. And it's really important to recognize that and like give back wherever you can. But one of the guys I went to grad school with, he was running the UX team at YouTube. I was not really actively looking, but we just started talking and he said there was an opportunity uh, to work on the music product at the time. They were building a new music app. Then I left where I was and I joined there. A couple things. One is graduate school. What superpower did you develop that really was a vital asset for you in your career that you got from going to grad school that you didn't have before then? One superpower probably is really leaning or being more confident and trusting my gut intuition on a lot of things. Because the projects that we were learning there, they were real life projects, right? Like we were, it wasn't just like school. We were, I remember doing a project for Microsoft and I get teamed with another designer and a person from HCI, Human Computer Interaction Department, and a person from the business school. And we all got mashed together and we were trying to develop a new like a social app for Microsoft, right? And it was like, what are we trying to build and what are we trying to do? And there would be a lot of debates and we would go back into the research. And ultimately it's like all the data and the qualitative research and the quantitative research, and all that's gonna point you in a certain direction. And ultimately there's also just your intuition as a designer on what you think is gonna be right for who you're designing for and what you think will be a good experience. And that's kind of stemming from your own personal experiences. It's from all the things that you've sort of learned in experience. I think I learned that I can leverage that, right? And bring that in. And that was a superpower that I didn't know about before, right? Because it was all about like, wait, what, what, are the, what is the research saying? They really don't like this. So we should fix this, right? It was so correlated to that. So I think it was like, that is one data point. And then there's also just trusting in yourself as a designer and trusting in your intuition on what's right for crafting an amazing experience. If you could give yourself when you were just starting out at life, like right when you're about to start your career, maybe just graduating high school, possibly just graduating college, I'm not sure, whatever resonates more for you. Like uh, if you could give that person advice, what would that advice be? I think it's this notion of like stumbling or like, I'll give you an analogy. I took my daughter to see a play and it was based on this kid's book called Beautiful Oops. And the whole thing was about someone was trying to make an art project and they had this like specific way in which it should go. Like I really needed to look like this and it should have these colors and it had should these things and something got messed up and it was like a oh my God, right? Like everything's over. But then it was learning from that and figuring out what do you do with that to make something 
out of that. And that was where the beautiful oops came in. And like, I think as a young person growing up, it's like, we're so determined to like hit these things or like achieve some level, whatever that level is. And what I learned is that by fixating on that, it's like you kind of miss all the like oopses along the way. And when you kind of like are able to embrace an oops and sort of just go with it, there's so many really incredible opportunities and learnings. So that's what I would say is like, it's okay, fumble, fumble and go. It's good. Beautiful oops. I really like that. For you, now that you've been in your life looking at years past, what would you say is the best piece of advice that you've gotten? I've been recently getting some lots of advice. There's so much advice. Like uh, advice or opinions? That's your advice oh, or opinions? Because oh, oh, the opinions right? are a little bit much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And how do we how do we categorize when it's just your opinion and it's good advice? I have a whole philosophy behind opinions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. It's an interesting time, right? I mean, like just working from home and adapting to this new way of living and working. We're in like hustle mode, right? Like how do we function? How do we make sure we're continuing to do good work and being there for our teams and being productive and making sure your kids are learning and making sure I'm getting self-care and all sorts of stuff, right? And just like in this, like, like make it work. And someone told me like, this is a phase of reassessment. Like it's not about like when things will get back to normal and trying to adapt so that you can sort of make do until you get back to normal. This is an interesting time where like, unfortunately it's because we're in, in the middle of a pandemic and there's lots of things going on, but it's a time for reassessment, which is like, what do you want to reassess and how you want to think about your career goals, what you want to do with your life? What do you want to focus on? I was mentioning I was going to do this podcast, right? And we started talking about that. And they're like, do you like doing podcasts? And I was like, I don't know. We'll see. We'll, we'll figure it out. But I think so, right? And she's like, well, you could even reassess. Do you want to spend some more time like telling your story to others and like focusing on that as opposed to just, you know, focusing on your specific projects. So this notion of like reassessing what is important to me and how I want to achieve that. And that might be very different from when we started, you know, three months ago. And I'm curious, I, I have no clue what you're going to answer to this. Have you been on podcasts before? I have not. You are my first. Stop. Okay. I should never make assumptions. Okay. So I ask that question all the time and there's some people like yourself, I almost don't ask because I assume you have, right? So the majority of guests that have been on the show, I don't know the exact numbers, but for exaggeration purposes, I'd say 99%, like a really high percentage of guests have not been on a podcast before. They haven't been on stage before and they're prominent women in their fields. And what I like to say and why this gets me so excited is that I hope the Women in Tech podcast is a poaching ground. I hope that every woman that I am celebrating, it's just like they're going to be celebrated so much more and everybody everywhere is going to like be like, oh, Esprit celebrated her. Let me see if I can get her on my show too and on my stage too and on my da-da-da-da-da too. Like it's interesting to me when you are further along in your career, such as yourself, I think it's inspiring for everyone listening because I'm sure that they made the assumption too. Like we shouldn't assume anything about anybody and we should give everybody as much opportunity as we can and empower others as often as we can. No one just has things thrown at them all the time and no one has everything figured out as much as we may perceive that they do. I know it's going off on a bit of a oh, tangent. Oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah, 100%. Like, yeah. And, and I got to tell you, you're dope. Like you are hands Aww. down what you're doing and 
you know, just listening to your podcast, like I got a chance to like really go back into your episodes, like the platform you're giving women is incredible. I think just enabling people from all around the world to share their story. And this is what everyone that I talk to on a regular day basis, like whether it's people on my team or people I'm mentoring, they're seeking out these insights, right? They're so hungry for like, and it's not insights you get from a textbook or from a lecture or from a TED talk or for some design panel or some very expensive, like, you know, coaching circle. It's just real life stories that you hear and like the, the sort of funny and crazy and mishaps along the way. I think that that is really amazing. And you're, you're sharing. I so appreciate you saying that. I'm, something I've never said publicly before is I've been criticized because I'm in tech. I'm very, very much in tech. And there's so many reasons why I created the Women in Tech podcast. One of them is because I wanted a place to share stories that set examples of what's possible. But I've been criticized that, oh, you have this Women in Tech podcast, but you don't talk about tech. You don't talk about how to build things and the engineering side of tech. And I'm like, there's so much more to tech than just code. Like there's there's a whole lifestyle that comes to tech and all this stuff. I'm just being really transparent. It really bummed me out. It made me question myself. Like, am I like an imposter, you know? And so to hear that from you means a lot to me. And the feedback I've gotten from the very few friends I've shared it with has meant a lot to me. I purposely haven't brought it up before because I'm so into staying focused on that, like on the abundance. I'm like, I'm not going to bring up this negative thing, but I think you're pioneering in that space. The different types of women that you are bringing in are absolutely representing what tech is today. Tech is such an aggregation of all different types of disciplines, right? I'm bringing in writers, strategists, marketing, you know, UX design, engineering. It's so important, right? And that is really what tech is now. It is not just about simply building. That is, you know, an important function of it. But everything I see in day to day is, is much broader than that. Thank you so much. It's like, it's interesting when I'm talking about technology, not on the podcast, but just in general in a conversation and people are asking me, what is tech? I'm like, well, you can't just build something and then expect the world to know it exists. You need to have someone who understands marketing and communications to understand how to explain the technology to the public and how to make it a product market fit and blah, blah, blah. There's just so many aspects to making a company, a tech company successful. And you're all in tech to make that happen. But I really appreciate you sharing that and just the way you shared it just so organically without us even talking about it. I'm like, okay, it's almost like I needed to validate. I guess, you know why it comes up? It comes up because I must still be questioning myself. I must still be doubting myself. I just felt like, I don't know. We all have those moments and I choose to be vulnerable with them publicly. You're doing it. You're doing it. And you're doing it really well. The imposter thing is real. I I remember it was my first onboarding at Google, you know, and I was so scared out of my mind because I hadn't worked at a big tech company before. Remember, I came from all these more smaller design consultancies or agencies. And I I walked in there. I was like, I do not know how I'm going to survive this. Oh, my God. I'm really like, they're going to fire me today. You know, they're going to, it might last a week. And they had brought up in the training section, what I really appreciated was this notion of like imposter syndrome. And they kind of like asked, and you know, it kind of came up and you're like, oh, whoa, they're framing it in, in some terminology. And they're actually talking about it. And they're like, how many in this room do you feel like you shouldn't actually even be here today? And I would say like all hands went up. And I was like, all right, okay. All right, we're all, okay, let's look. Wow. Yeah. And how cool that they did that. Yeah. Wow. 
That's I'm sure awesome. There was, I'm sure there's a couple that did not, but the point is, is like, I think people seeing like, you know, like we all kind of, no matter how capable we are, I think we do question that. Like we question whether we belong, whether we have the skills, whether we have like what it takes. And I think the courage and the bravery to sort of try something new and expand is so much more like than anything else. I love it. So a couple last questions. One is, this is a bit of a selfish question. I usually ask it really last, but I'm going to, I'm going to switch up a little bit. What are your favorite tech tools, hardware, software, mobile app, website? Yeah. Oh gosh. I know. I had a feeling you were going to ask this. So I'm going to go back to like, this is like maybe something that has been said before, but, but just because of the times we're in right now, where we're in this new normal of working from home and this shelter in place, my Apple Earpods, AirPods have been crux. Earpods, AirPods. My AirPods Pro are incredibly sort of my lifeline right now. And the reason is because they are going with me where I need to go. I'm in meetings a lot and sometimes I need to get up. And so I can take meetings outside. I can walk. I can make lunch for my kids. I can check on what they're doing like with their work and then come back. I can go for a run. And it's just like with me throughout my day and keep my sort of productivity, my functionality and my sanity. Yeah, the range that they have is insane. Sometimes I forget that I don't have my phone anywhere near me and then I forget where I put the phone because I could still hear the person clearly in my ears. <laughs> I feel you on that. I like that. A more important question than that is what is a huge obstacle you've successfully overcome in your career and how did you overcome it? It's a good question. I mean, I think I think I'm in it now. I think like you know, it's a huge obstacle and challenge, but it's also like incredibly like exciting. And, you know, being on YouTube TV right now, what my goal and my role is to reimagine the future of TV. And YouTube is positioned to do this. And they're looking to the amazing team that I work with every day to reimagine what that will be like for people, right? TV is something that used to be this box that you would turn on with a knob and sit there and just sort of like be forced on what's what's on, right? Like whatever it is, it was like kind of tuning into whatever. But, and then it sort of changed into a lot of different ways of watching um, where you're kind of binge watching stuff. But YouTube TV is is already an incredible product because it's a, it's a streaming platform, but it's bringing live back, right? Because everyone's been sort of in these Netflix worlds where you kind of like sit there and you just like, you know, you could watch anything like at any time. And the notion of like live TV is like being able to watch the Olympics when it's happening or the Oscars when Parasite won, which was like huge. Like I was so excited about that. Right. And like being able to like engage in that at a time where everyone else and like my family in Korea and everyone was so excited about that. There's something really visceral and amazing about live, especially in a time where we're really distributed and somewhat disconnected. And I think we are in a really unique opportunity to carve out what that experience would be like, to help people stay connected, to help people develop a better understanding of stories from all around the world and open up their minds and their ways of thinking. And that is one of my biggest challenges that I haven't overcome yet, but it's something that I'm doing day to day. What is a book or story or article you've read recently that's really inspired you? This book called Pachinko, I don't know if you guys have ever heard about it, but it's this amazing novel written by this very talented Korean author. I fell into the book, like I literally fell into the book and couldn't put it down. But it's such a wonderful way of telling a story, it really resonated with me, but it, I think it would resonate with anyone. And it's, it's describing like 
through three generations of a, a Korean family that immigrated to Japan and a lot of the, the struggles that they faced. And it's hitting on a lot of issues with stereotypes and racism. And you don't typically think about racism when you think about like Asian within Asian. But a lot of the things that we're experiencing today, but it's told in this really wonderfully beautiful story. I would encourage everyone to read it because I love seeing more and more Asian American authors rising to the surface. I love it. And Esther, how can people connect with you online? Are you on LinkedIn? I am on LinkedIn. Yes. Can you spell your name for everybody? Yes, it's Esther. That's E-S-T-H-E-R. And last name is A-H-N. Yeah, hit me up. Awesome. Esther, thank you so much for hanging out with the Women in Tech podcast. To connect and collaborate with more extraordinary women in tech around the world, go to womenintechvip.com. That's womenintechvip.com. Takes you straight there. And say hello on social at Women in Tech Show on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. I will see you guys, talk to you guys, hear you guys in the next episode. Bye. Bye. Hey, I'm Esther on. And I'm head of UX at YouTube TV, which is a premium live TV streaming service where we offer over 70 channels and on-demand content that's available on your TV, on your mobile phone, and on your computer. And we're based in the Bay Area. You're listening to Women in Tech. Hi, this is Arlen Hamilton, author of It's About Damn Time, How to Turn Being Underestimated into Your Greatest Advantage. And you're listening to We Are LA Tech. I feel so grateful I've had the privilege of getting an advanced copy of Arlen Hamilton's new book, It's About Damn Time. She is one of the most inspiring venture capitalists I've ever come across. Her story from having absolutely nothing and being completely broke to being one of the most influential venture capitalists in the world blows my mind and her book is insanely well written right when I picked it up I didn't want to put it down she teaches me and us how to become the asset how to be our best selves and how to be a person that not only creates opportunity for ourselves but creates an abundance of opportunity for others I'm so proud to share her book with you and I hope you'll pick it up and I know for sure you'll be just as riveted as I was with each page you turn get it's about damn time at itsaboutdamntime.com. The Women in Tech podcast is hosted and produced by me, Esprit Devora, With help from Janice Geronimo. Edited by Corey Jennings. Production and voiceover by Adam Carroll. Community spotlight coordination by Sarah Tran. And music from Jay Huffman Live and Epidemic Sound. The Women in Tech podcast is a wearetech.fm production. Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener, go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes.